Sounds good to me. All right. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Welcome to episode 17 of DLN Extend. Can you believe it's episode 17? I cannot believe it. I, I just wanted to stop down because it's a prime number that is in the teens. There's really no good reason for me to stop down there. We choose topics covered by the Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion to extend the conversation. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, Das Geek, Tux Digital, and the latest show, Hardware Addicts. I'm Nate, a Linux fitness and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. And I'm Eric. So, Nate, what have you been up to this week? Outside of work stuff, which has been keeping me busy, I have been playing with FreeOffice. Have you heard of FreeOffice? I have. A... You're kind of a LibreOffice fanboy based on your videos. Well, I mentioned in the last <laughs> episode that uh, I may be partial to that whole ribbon UI paradigm. I do recall that. Yeah, you know, you kind of get used to something and then that's what you get used to and what works for you. So I've been slowly trying to retrain myself on the LibreOffice UI. Now they do have a lot of different ways to configure it, which is great. So you can change from that icon, the default sort of smattering of icons that <laughs> that exist there. And there are different like tabbed interfaces. I think they have like five or six different uh, layouts, which is it's actually kind of neat that they put the thought into that. I do appreciate that, that uh, layout switching. I, I find I like the traditional, you know, the 1990s, if I may say, or the, you know, whatever the, the menu that is, was common before the ribbon. Is it a familiarity? That's real. I mean, you, you kind of say it's the 90s, you know, layout, but is it really just because you're familiar with it at this point? Well, actually, that's the funny thing. So I like that layout for the word processor and the spreadsheet. But I prefer the ribbon layout for the presentation application. I think it's just because the, the present now or present from here button is bigger on, on that and it's, it's easier to find. And maybe I don't spend as much time making presentations because I think presentations are kind of dumb. I don't know. I, I've tried the other layouts and they're fine. I can find everything. It's, it's not so much a find. It's just I feel like the ribbon is slower because I do use Microsoft Office. I actually keep a copy running. Shh, don't tell anyone on my system. And so I use Microsoft Office for some some like Excel things. I'm very comfortable with that layout too, but I just happen to prefer the the buttons. I, I just feel like they're more, they're all presented in front of you. But I think it does have a, a higher learning or steeper learning curve for a new user. I, I can say that, you know, you know, very comfortably. You know, I started using Office products when there weren't that many options. And so I kept adding options and adding options. And I can see how it looks kind of convoluted today with all those buttons and things and widgets and so forth uh, to kind of loop it back into free office. So I've been trying free office just because, well, actually, because dark one seems to swear by it. And so I I had to just, you know, give it, give it the good elementary school try and, and just see how it goes. And I don't know how they get, get away with the look of it. Have you, have you seen it? <laughs> it? It seems pretty shameless to me. I have to believe that there's, some way that they are getting away with it but yeah there has to be yeah i mean there's there no way be. that microsoft hasn't seen it so i, I imagine not I, i'm sure they just don't care i mean it is a little bit different there's some variations of course and i like how it looks i think it looks nice it's very it's a very clean interface it, it the the dark theme looks better than any of the microsoft 
dark themes I've seen as far as the ribbon layout goes. So I think it's well done. Would I switch to that from LibreOffice? I really don't see what I would gain, I guess, at this point. I, I, I mean, like LibreOffice Draw. I think we talked about this last time, I think. Or some, recently, anyway. Or maybe we were just chatting about it. I don't know. Yeah, we were talking about how the uh, how the PDF how it handles PDFs. Yeah, there was that, and then also just like you know, like doing charts, doing mm-hmm. flow charts with yeah. LibreOffice Draw. Doing, yeah, the, I, the, I did actually did my the program I couldn't but, remember was Visio. That that's what I was trying to find. Yeah, Visio. Yeah, yeah. that that's it. Yeah. Um, but using I use that to to create my my network, like make a network diagram for my house. And and just because it was really easy to do, and I liked it, and so it's a whole suite of really of really great applications. But I can see the complaint that it looks dated, I guess, it, because it certainly looks better now than it had. Um, I mean, even just a few years ago, I remember looking at it and just being like, "Wow!" You said '90s interface, and I mean, at that point, it really did look very <laughs> very sort of flat. Actually, I say flat, and that's funny. I'm the exact opposite. So in Calc. For example, all of the table headers, the row tops had <laughs> had these really hideous gradients. And um, anyway, so my point being that they've already come a long way, in my opinion, in the UI. And it's it's interesting to me that you mentioned that you use different UIs in different applications, and the fact that they have that flexibility is that's pretty cool. It is. Free Office doesn't have that. They kind of had their their standard layout, and Microsoft Office is kind of the same. So anyway, free office, you, you did have a chance to try it out. And besides just the look and feel, did you, anything on the functionality or? No, I mean, basically that's everything that I need. It's fine. I guess I look at it and it, it works really well. It, it's really, it's very comfortable, I would say, for somebody who comes from a Microsoft office, you know, world. I I would also say um, if, if I were to switch somebody to Linux, let's say, because this conversation has happened before. I think this is the direction I would go with them, actually, because it, it has more of a commercial feel to it. I would say it feels less like an open. Man, that, that, okay, that was a, that was a horrible way. I almost started that. <laughs> it it feels less like an open source project, but I love open source projects. But it doesn't feel like a uh, something that was just built by hobbyists. Not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying it doesn't. Ha- it has a different feel to it. it has a more of a commercial feel to it because I use the breeze dark theme in. LibreOffice, and in some ways, I think that that maybe holds it back a little bit because it's just the the you know the icon outlines and so forth. You don't I don't get any from a lot of those icons don't have any color in it. I don't know if that's the look that we're going for now. If that's that's what people that's what, what the kids like these days or what. I don't know. Just it's been it's been fun. I don't think I would switch to using it. I, I got the the free license key for it. I'll keep it on my system for now. But I think I'm more or less just going to push new people toward this. So Eric. What have you been up to besides making a bunch of videos? Well, I've made a bunch that I haven't actually published <laughs> and I've just really been working on video editing, which led me back to Caden Live. And I have not been a fan of Caden Live in the past. I recall you saying this. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been making very simple videos. And so all have worked really well for me. It's a very clean UI. All of the plugins have a, a consistency. So the filters, just how all of it fits together is very clean. And when I go into something like Caden Live, it's a little overwhelming because there's just so much there. There's a couple things in Caden Live that I can't say I, I'm a huge fan of, 
But what I was trying to do was to make a much more complicated video with transitions and animations, just different things that I hadn't really been trying to do in, in Olive. And I tried to do them in Olive, and you really can't because those things don't exist. There are some transitions, but they're really simple, like fades. There's no wipe or sort of all of the potential different types of transitions that are in Caden Live. So I just, I had the opportunity to do something more complicated and realized that the tool I was using wasn't going to work. And so I spent some time in Caden Live and learned how to use it. I mean, I'm just starting out, so there's a lot that I don't know. But what I was able to figure out is, you know, how those transitions work, how to do some basic animations. I had had a huge issue with the title editor before. And uh, what I figured out is it has limitations, but they're pretty easy to work around. Like, so for example, in the title editor, there is an animation component, but it's very simple. It's just a start and an end. The start to the end, whatever duration you have set, that's just what it does. And one of the things in all of that I always appreciated was keyframing. So I could just easily keyframe different effects, transformations and things like that. And I could do a lot of things uh, just, just from keyframes. So I've applied that same approach in Caden Live and figured out, okay, the title editor animation isn't very good, but I could put the title in there and then take that title and transform it as a clip and then within the transforms, be able to do keyframing and get the type of animation that I was looking for that you just can't do in the title editor. So it's there. There's ways to do it. You just have to kind of do it a different way. At the end of it, after spending you know several hours just playing around with the video, I at least was able to get a clean effect. You know, I, I kind of had an idea in mind and I was able to do it. So from that perspective, all of the issues I had with Caden Live before. I'm not seeing now. The other thing is I was in there editing for hours at a time and no crashes. Um, so that was a problem I had in the past where I swear every time I've tried it before, I would get 10 minutes into editing and then it would just crash and it would recover, but it was just obnoxious, you know, <laughs> right. like a continuous interruption. Um, and now it seems like it, uh, it's much more stable. The performance was better, so I had a bunch of transforms and layering and transitions, and and the playback was actually pretty reasonable. I had never really had any reason to use it, and when I looked at it, it just seemed overly complicated, and now that I'm actually trying to do some things that are more involved, it's turned into a tool that makes sense to use, and I can now understand why when people said, oh, well... All of looks like it has promise, but it's missing some really key things like transitions. And I was always like, eh, big deal transitions. And then as soon as you try to try to do them, it's like, oh, okay, now I get it. Would you say the, uh, the time it took you to make the edits was any quicker or any more, more efficient than using Olive or about the same? No. And that's one of the reasons that I stuck with Olive was that the editing in the timeline is much, much faster than Caden Live. You can either cut sections or you can highlight a section. They have a ripple cut, which means you just, you select something or clip something, and then you can just have it automatically close the gap. In Caden Live, there is no equivalent to that. You can cut sections, you can delete them, but then you have to right-click on the timeline and remove space. So it's, it's an extra step. And 
depending on how many edits you do, it can be really obnoxious. But I think the way I was approaching editing, like I kept asking people, doesn't that annoy you? And they'd be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So obviously I was doing something that other people weren't doing because other systems are like that too. So if I went into, you know, like Lightworks or some other video editing software, I think Shotcut was like that because none of them behave the way Olive does. That's why I kept going back to Olive because for me, it just made sense. But I think now I'm understanding that maybe I was just approaching it in an odd way and maybe Olive does it in an odd way. And that, that's why people don't see the value like I did because those things that were obviously missing combined with maybe a, an, a different approach to doing a common thing. It's funny because when you don't know any better, you just kind of gravitate towards what works for you. Olive had been that thing for me, but now I think Caden Live might be the better tool. And if I'm going to invest my time in learning something, it seems like Caden Live makes more sense for that because it just has the capabilities I think I'll need. Like I said, I'm happy I took the time that I came back to it. I gave it some time. And once I got over that hurdle of the UI and kind of figuring out some of these little things, then it kind of clicked and made sense. Well, it's awesome. I've only really played with Caden Live a lot outside of uh, Windows Movie Maker, you know, some many years ago. Once I learned that, you could use S for select and X for cut for cutting up the, uh, the, the video or audio clips. I would fly through a lot of editing pretty quickly. Well, for me, quickly is probably incredibly slow for everybody else, but much quicker than having to find the, the clicks and whatnot. And I find keyboard shortcuts are the, are the key to everything efficient. Uh, another reason why keyboards are awesome. This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API. Multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 a month. DigitalOcean has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash dln. And we thank you... And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. Michael made a really good point on This Week in Linux about the cloud agnostic tutorials. They offer the tutorials for free, so you don't have to be a subscriber. And cloud agnostic, basically, that means that there's lots of stuff on there that doesn't really relate to DigitalOcean specifically. So I remember I was doing a Python install. I searched for Python install, and sure enough, the first entry in the search result was DigitalOcean, <laughs> and they had a fantastic tutorial about how to install Python. So they have lots of stuff on there that isn't just cloud specific. And the fact that it's showing up in the search results, um, you know, being placed so high, it just shows you what a, a great resource and it's credible. You know, they give all their information, links out to the projects and DigitalOcean, they just seem like not only a good resource, but just kind of, I don't know the best way to say it. They put this stuff out there for free. These are highly skilled people writing these tutorials. It's a service to the tech community in general. 
I do think that's pretty awesome. All the information they just have out there for free that really shows their value outside of just being a you know, virtual private server available. Yeah, I think that's great. On Destination Linux episode 163, in the community feedback, CoReader, which is an open source ebook reading software for Kobo and Kindle devices, was mentioned and discussed. And uh, Nate, I think this is something you were interested in. Yep. I like to read. I have a Kindle Paperwhite. Yeah, I know it's Amazon and, you know, that's proprietary or whatever. I do want to wind this back just a little bit. And I didn't buy my first e reader until after doing about nine months of research as to which one I was going to use. So I felt pretty good about going with the Kindle. It was the Kindle 3, which has since broken. But anyway, I, I've been very happy with, with the Kindle. But the issue that I've always had is with PDFs. And, and if you load a PDF into a Kindle, it's, it's um, you know, the little, the little screen, you just cannot see it. And then you have to like zoom in or do all these kind of weird things. It doesn't reflow the PDF or, or doesn't do it nicely anyway. And the, the co-reader, what was brought up, brought up about this, which I have not tried yet, but what interests me the most is the ability to have, be able to read PDFs on it acceptably. I don't know how it's done. I don't even know how well it works, but it was enough for me to say, I have to make it a priority to, to try this co-reader on the Kindle. And I hope it works on the Paperwhite. If it doesn't work on the Paperwhite, then I'm going to be very sad. I'll be a sad panda. But yeah, that, I thought that was really interesting, uh, having that an open source reader application on a, uh, on a device, I think sounds pretty darn awesome. Do you ever use any any such readers, or are you are you all multimedia now with your Caden Live and and building this YouTube empire that you have? <laughs> wow, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let's say that <laughs> I I never made the leap to a e reader. I've actually used one, and I do like the the paper displays. I think it's the contrast is very nice, and it does simulate a printed page very nicely. I just, I guess I never quite, so you mentioned PDFs and that was probably most of the stuff that I ended up reading. And so I would just use my tablet, honestly, you know, the organization of an e-reader, the ability to save your page. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that is appealing, but without having a dedicated device with that paper display, it, it really, you know, I already had the, the Android tablet and I, I guess I just never made the leap. Honestly, again, most of the stuff I read is, it's not fiction. It's either nonfiction stuff, it's technical manuals. It, it, so I basically just never had a, a big need. And the last time I looked at them, they were fairly expensive. I know the paper white, and then I looked at the Kobos as well. They were all, I want to say like at least over a hundred dollars. Like they were definitely not like a just quick, cheap purchase and try it out kind of thing. It, it was more of a commitment that you were going to buy this thing and use it. And I guess what I concluded was that it was unlikely that I would use it enough to justify that cost. Well, I've been, uh, not so much with my current job, but in a previous job of mine, I did a lot of traveling and there's a lot of waiting in airports, a lot of waiting in buses or waiting, a lot of waiting and carrying around books was just not, you just couldn't do it. I mean, you could take a book with you probably, but that was generally never enough. So Having the Kindle and, and all the books on there that I could, as many as I could have, was a lot more than I could stuff in a backpack. So I, I became quite the fan of the Kindle, and I was really quite sad when I broke my first one, and then the second one, and the third one I've had for a good seven years now. 
and and I, that it's been working great. It's a, it's a paper. This is a paper white though, with a a slight backlight if you want it. And although I don't travel as much, I still use it pretty frequently. I, I wouldn't say every day, but almost daily. I'm reading something uh, right now. I'm reading some paper books, so I know I know that's that's really you know 20th century or might be older now. Paperback. That's 20th century, right? I um yeah, there's some paperbacks I've been reading, so I haven't been using the Kindle quite as much. But and I I really appreciate that e-ink display. It's very low power. It just lasts forever. I mean, w- many weeks between charges and actively using it. So that's really the the key feature for me. That's how much of a unfamiliar topic it is to me i was saying paper display and i meant e-ink so there you go yeah yeah i knew what you were talking about (laughs) on episode 171 of the ask noah show an intel funded study found that amd processors including all ryzen chips are vulnerable to side channel security flaws now, my understanding is it's not as easy to exploit this side channel security flaw. You have to really, the, the application really has to do some poking and poke the same address over a period of time before it actually gets the, the data and does not leak as much data. It is interesting to see that, you know, even AMD is vulnerable. I, well, you know, I found it interesting that it was an Intel funded study. <laughs> I had to find some dirt somewhere, huh? Yeah, that does seem a little shady on the surface, <laughs> but I mean... The way that Noah described it, and I, I haven't done the research, but he had mentioned that Intel funded it, but it was really a sort of general, they were opening themselves up to as much criticism as AMD was. The other thing that he mentioned was that the mitigation for this is much less impactful. So for like Spectre and Meltdown, those can significantly decrease the performance of an Intel processor versus apparently this is much less impactful yeah that was my understanding too yeah that it's not it's not as big of a deal but it is there and a lot harder to exploit but it, it does kind of show that there's hardware is not I mean, pretty much since, since what 2016 or is it 17 that these have been popping up here there and everywhere it seems like uh you know the, the hardware is not as trusted as it once was this shows that there's other flaws and other spots you know, I, I keep I keep wondering if there's more flaws in the uh, ARM architecture that's just there's not have been found yet, or if the fundamentally the architecture is less vulnerable I, because it doesn't have all the legacy stuff built in there. I, I don't know. It would be interesting to to see what comes of that. In your line of work with trying to design products, I mean, you have to keep a lot of different guidelines in in mind when you're designing something, not just you know the cost in the material or the cost of fabrication or you know, that kind of stuff, but like safety and, um, and you, you plan for as much as you can, but I'm sure you've run into situations where you just can't account for every possible thing that, that could happen. No, absolutely not. No, you just can't. I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do. I, I was actually thinking, thinking about this with the house analogy again, no matter how well you fortify the the doors and windows on your home, if nothing else, they can come with a bulldozer and just rip the wall off the side of your house ultimately. Right. So it's only a matter of time for any anything that is secured that can be broken with enough time. A lot of these these uh, newer vulnerabilities, a lot of them just they don't seem like they're easy to exploit. And so I think that the we're going to find other flaws, you know, other other gaps in security. But how easy is it to actually exploit and take advantage of it? I'm not convinced that it is. So for me, I'm not really worried 
about these kind of vulnerabilities. I mean, also, I'm not I'm not a target either. It didn't seem like something that could just hang out and cause problems, but something that had to require some sort of active intrusion to be able to get those addresses out of memory. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but it, it didn't sound like something that's that's that a script Katie can just pull down and, and execute, essentially. And in case we haven't included enough disclaimers and backpedaled enough, anyone who actually understands this stuff out there who's cringing right now, I offer my sincere apologies. This is just us looking at, looking at this and trying to evaluate it as, as laypersons. If this were truly a critical, serious vulnerability, I think it would probably be a bigger story or a bigger deal. But again, this is just <laughs> us looking at this from, from our very limited experience. And also for every bit mm. of terminology I did not understand in, in the write-up, I just replaced it with magic words, magic words, magic words, vulnerability, magic words. So. <laughs> the other thing in this episode that wasn't in the show notes, but and it was almost mentioned in passing. I mean, Noah spent a little bit of time on it, but um, when I heard it, I thought, oh, that, that sounds like a cool idea. So there's this website, opensource.builders. And it lists open source alternatives to your favorite apps. So if you go to the website itself, uh, they what they do is they just have a nice layout, very clean, and then it just links out to the different projects. Now, I was not aware of many of the projects that are on here. And nor was I. Yeah, I mean, and a couple that stuck out to me. So doing web work and servers, uh, cPanel is a pretty big player in the web server web hosting market. So, it, you know, if you're not familiar, cPanel gives you, it's short for control panel, but it gives you, uh, yeah, a control panel so that you can configure the web server, the databases, email, uh, DNS, I mean, on and on and on. You can, you know, reconfigure things, change a lot of settings. It's It's a very involved product. It's also not cheap. And most shared hosting will give you access to something like cPanel, there are some alternatives to that that are also not open source. Now, they've got Webmin listed, which I'm familiar with Webmin, uh, Hestia, which I've seen, but there's one called Vesta, which I've never heard of. Which is the most popular one on there too. Yeah, exactly. And so I went and looked and, I mean, it looks pretty interesting. So I'm going to do some testing on that and see how that looks. The other one that stuck out to me was uh, Zapier, Zapier. I'm not exactly sure how people pronounce it. I say Zapier because they have zaps. That's their little widgets or containers of functionality. And, and, and Zapier, it's a way to hook web apps together. So like a, a use case for it would be, I make a post on my WordPress blog, and then I want that post to be pushed out or, or, or some version of it, maybe the title and the link and the the uh, description or something like that. And I want that to be a social media post so I can have it uh, pull the system. So it's pulling my WordPress website. And when it finds a new post, it will go ahead and do that for me. So it's, it's almost like Ift, if you're familiar with Ift, if this, then that very similar, but this is much more capable and much more configurable. Anyway, it's also not free. As far as I know, it's not open source either. And so there's an alternative on here called Huggin. I think that's how you say it. And it also looks like a really interesting project that I've never heard of. And so this is this is a really well done website with some very good alternatives on here. 
And there's all kinds of stuff. There's alternatives for Trello, if you're familiar with that project management software, Zendesk for help desk systems, uh, Salesforce. I mean, the list goes on. I'm not going to just <laughs> sit here and read everything off, but I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But yeah, there, there's a lot of really cool stuff in here that I've just never really heard of. I was disappointed by one thing, or maybe it's two, or two parts to one thing. The password manager, they used one password, never heard of it. Oh, really? Okay. And then Bitwarden wasn't number one underneath that. So um, don't know what's going on there. How do I, how do I vote that up? That's well, and for know. people that don't go and look, <laughs> it's not going to be surprising that the number one option is KeePass XC. A, a lot of people love that application. So it's not too surprising. It has 7.2 thousand votes and Bitwarden has 4.8 thousand. Yeah, so it's a close. It's close. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> no. So anyway, if you haven't ever heard of this, like I hadn't, and you are interested in open source alternatives, which I think a lot of us are, then it's a really cool resource, just something that's very useful. So I will uh, put a link, like I said, in the show notes so you can take a look at it. You might find a new gem that you hadn't heard of before. On episode 30 of Linux for Everyone, Alan Pope was the guest talking to Jason Evangelo. I have to say, I think this was Jason Evangelo's best yet episode where he was really on his A game. I mean, I felt like Jason was not holding back at all, asking Alan all the tough questions that people have of Ubuntu and, and snaps and so forth. I know one of the one of the constant criticisms that people have of, of uh, Ubuntu, fair or not, uh, is, like for, of snaps, is there's only one repository. And I actually, after listening to Alan's explanation, I find that I agree with his take on, you know, on, on having one, one repository as it makes it easier to find the application that you want. I had no idea that Snaps had so many applications in the repository. But at the same time, I can understand people's apprehension to that as well. If uh, the repository goes down or if Ubuntu decides to just shut it all off and it's all shut off. But, you know, Ubuntu has done, or Canonical, I should say, has done so much for Linux since since it started, I think, what, 2004, I think it was, 2003? I don't remember the... Just past the 15-year mark, yeah. I mean, say what you will, they've given us a lot. They really have. Now, it's not my number one choice for, for what I use, because you know, I have an unhealthy obsession for something else. But I, I can recognize, you know, game recognize game when Ubuntu does things that are just awesome. Not really a fan of Unity, but what things from Unity have trickled down into other desktops because they were pioneers in certain certain areas they gave us mirror which is helping for the using being used as a compositor for for wayland now so they, they've they filled in some of the other projects have filled in other gaps and i i am a fan of snaps though i'm just kind of racing around here and, and going around in circles here talking about this but i think ubuntu very unfairly gets gets beat up maybe because they're on top of the hill and you know everyone's everyone wants to take a swing at the big guy i suppose but yeah so it was it was a great interview I uh, I really enjoyed it, and I am going to listen to it again because I really appreciate how how Alan Pope kind of wraps everything up, how he presents his information, how he tells a story, and somebody should pay him to read um you know children's books. I think that would be uh, I I'd, I'd pay for that an Audible or something, or maybe something open source. Is there an open source alternative on the open source builders for Audible? I don't see one. <laughs> That's a good question. There is a search. To me, the most interesting part was that I've heard most of these topics of discussion, but in segmented or compartmentalized 
pieces where Alan will talk about snaps. He's addressed the closed source snap store, you know, the server backend many times in many different ways on many different podcasts and videos and things like that. But to have him be able to discuss all of these things in one sitting, this to me is now a great resource for someone who has these questions and can sit and listen to the threads being connected, if you will, and the story being told in a way that is cohesive. That's why I found this episode to be as interesting as, as I did, not so much because it was all new information, but just because of the way that it was all tied together. He offered some really interesting opinions. So one of the questions that keeps circling around, and this is different podcasts and just things that he's involved with, is the idea of should there be a go-to or standard Linux distribution? The one that everybody kind of focuses on and that everybody says this is what Linux is. And so when newer people come to Linux, new people or newer people, there's a consistency and you kind of say, this is what everybody uses. It's kind of a difficult concept to even uh, to even think about in a Linux or an open source context because we're so used to this choice, to the ability for us to mix and match. And yes, I installed this distro, but I don't like this thing they did, so I'm going to change that. Or I'm going to install this piece of functionality from a different distro or set it up in this way. I, I think when you become a seasoned Linux user, you get so used to that. So when you hear the idea of like a standard Linux distribution, you immediately have this feeling of, well, maybe that's not the best choice or um, it's certainly not the one I make, right? You I mean, you say you just mentioned that you respect Ubuntu and Canonical and for what they've done, they've given so much back, but it's not your choice. You would rather use OpenSUSE and by rights, obviously anyone can use whatever they want. That's the whole point. So it can be a, can be a polarizing thing. I sort of agree with Alan Pope on that maybe there should be a universal distribution. I would argue that there already is, and it's called Ubuntu. I think it is the standard, if I may say it like this, consumer grade distribution. It's ready for consumers for like mass adoption for what for the widest use. And when I say Ubuntu, I mean that and also the derivatives that are very close to being, you know, very much Ubuntu. But I don't know if Mint would be in that group or not. I don't know. I can't I can't say for sure. But at, at least I know that, you know, um probably Zorn would be in there and, and any like Ubuntu Budgie and Mate and so forth. Ubuntu. But they're, they're they're the same. When I say Ubuntu, I mean all of those. And I think that they they are they're the the friendly, consumer-facing, easy-to-use Linux distributions. You, you can pick them up. You can get to work right away on any of those, I, I would say. And so that then once you are there, you can then try the buffet, as, as Alan put it, or was it Jason put it? I can't remember. But you can try the buffet and, you know, and try the things, you know, as it suits you. You know, I'm more of a, I like what I like. And I couldn't use Ubuntu on everything that I like now because they've dropped 32-bit support and, and there's some other things that they just don't do. And so it doesn't fit me as well. But I don't see why it wouldn't fit 90% of everybody else out there. It, I can't think of a reason why it wouldn't. And maybe that, that should be, you know, here's where we start. I, I think we're already there and, and whether we want to admit it or not, I think we've already said Ubuntu is kind of the, the de facto standard because of all the work that Ubuntu has done in making their presentation of Linux, very easy to digest. So I say congrats to them on that. Outside of the niche 
hardware products. So Manjaro has a laptop and Kubuntu as the focus. And there are some distro specific pieces of hardware that are being sold. Obviously system 76 is shipping all of their stuff with pop, but look at Dell, look at Lenovo, look at any HP, any, any major hardware manufacturer. If they sell one of their pieces of hardware with Linux on it, it's Ubuntu. And there's some really good reasons for that. One of them being that Canonical is a for-profit corporation with actual people employed and, you know, sustainability and there's support there. And if a vendor's trying to build hardware that works with Linux, it's an easy choice for them to work with Ubuntu. I mean, that's not a small thing and it's not a knock against smaller distributions, but the reality is that someone like Dell or one of those larger manufacturers, that's the level they're operating at. And that's the type of relationship they need to have with a software vendor. Ubuntu has the people and the infrastructure to support that now. And not all the distributions have that kind of infrastructure in place to be able to support vendors and so forth. Not only to support it, but they're actively going out and making these relationships. Project Sputnik wasn't just Dell dabbling. I mean, there are, there's been heavy involvement from Canonical all along, right? And you know, I, Martin Wimpress alluded to this at some point when someone had said, and this was several months ago, but someone had made the comment about, well, desktop PC sales are down. And you and I have commented on that in the past where maybe the percentage overall growth isn't the same as it was, but they're still selling millions of computers a year. And there's a slight uptick. It's not overwhelming, but there is an uptick in sales of hardware with Linux pre-installed, and you better believe that the lion's share of that is canonical. Mm -hmm. And the question that Martin was answering was, what does the growth look like for Ubuntu? And he mentioned he couldn't give specific numbers, but that the number of systems with Ubuntu pre-installed was a major factor in their growth. On the Das Geek YouTube channel, he made a video about the Elgato Stream Deck Mini and using it with Linux. So it's a small little touch device that you would use for controlling like OBS, for example, where you have different scenes and things like that. And you want to be able to easily switch a scene. If you're doing it with the OBS client on your desktop, it necessitates either you know pulling it up or flipping around. And basically you are, you can do hotkeys and things like that, but you can't be sure. And it's a little unnerving if you're trying to stream, if you can't know what scene you're on and how to easily and quickly shift between them. So the purpose of this little thing is that you just have some buttons and it's on a touch screen and you touch the button and it switches your scene. So it's a very simple device. And he went into how to set that up with Linux. So I watched part of the video, but I also had talked to him in person. And when he was telling me about it, it popped in my mind that I was almost sure there was a way to do this with Android to use a tablet, let's say, instead of getting a purpose-built device like this. And this is nothing against the Stream Deck. I mean, if you stream enough, then maybe this is the best solution. Uh, it's a dedicated little piece of hardware versus a tablet that may not be as ideal. But what I wanted to mention was that I did find what I had been talking about. Linux Gamecast made, Venn made a video on this a couple years ago. It's called OBS WebSocket. It's a plug-in for OBS. 
So you install it and then it creates a web server essentially. And then you connect to that OBS instance, the the instance of that server from your tablet in just a browser. Hmm. And from there, you just get a really simple UI that I'm assuming is very similar to the Elgato UI. And it's just buttons. And because it's on your tablet, they're just touch buttons and it lights up when you touch it. And sure enough, I got it set up in about five minutes and tested it out and it works perfectly. Now, will it always work? (laughs) Will it work as well as a dedicated piece of hardware? I don't know that, but it was free and it's open source. It's just on GitHub and it worked pretty easily. It was easy to set up. So anyway, it's a pretty simple way to use an existing piece of hardware. If you have an Android tablet, I mean, you could use a phone as well, but I think a tablet probably is a little easier to hit the big button. And uh, I'll link to it in the show notes if anyone's interested and does streaming. It's a pretty interesting tool. I could see if I if I did regular streaming or if I needed that kind of additional functionality, I could see the use of this particular device over a, a tablet, let's say, that especially a, a tablet that's whose charge port has become a little wonky over time and kind of does crazy things and could potentially shut down or crash. But I wonder, could you use just another computer with that? I don't see what the purpose, I don't see what the benefit with that would be exactly, but if it's just a web server... If you're using another computer, then you might as well just have OBS running on the other computer. So there there are ways to capture the screen from another system and have OBS on a dedicated. So if let's say you had multiple monitors, maybe it wouldn't be as big a deal. I, I just there's something very simplistic and straightforward and easy when you have this touch interface. So I think that's the appeal of it. I, again, I don't know that I would spend good money on a dedicated device. Just like with the e-reader, right? If I'm not going to use it and not use it regularly, if I can find a reasonable solution that doesn't require me to buy that dedicated piece of hardware, then I'll do that. I've used this tablet for, there's a vert screen, a way to extend, create a virtual monitor. Of So an Android tablet can be very useful for a lot of different purposes, but because it's not dedicated to just one purpose, you can use it in a multitude of ways versus, again, that Elgato Stream Deck is only ever going to be for that purpose. And if I'm not going to stream every day or every other, you know, not going to use it enough to justify it, then I think that's where an Android tablet comes into play is that it's going to be able to do lots of different things depending on what I need it to do. While we'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord, visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels, and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. You can find more information about me at that very site, or go to cubiclenate.com for links to my regular written blatherings, podcast, and YouTube nonsense. How about you, Eric? Where can we find you? You know, coincidentally, I am also under the creator section on destinationlinux.network. No kidding. I know. <laughs> That's so convenient. Someone could just go it there is. and find both of us. It's like a one-stop shop yeah. for all your DLN network needs. Wow. Those DLN, DLN guys have thought of everything. <laughs> Unbelievable. Every single thing. Unbelievable. They're probably thinking of more things, too. Probably. You're probably right. I'm just spitballing here. Well, we don't want to overpromise. We underpromise and overdeliver, right? That's that's the- that's right. Okay, there might be things. We'll see. <laughs> well, as always, we thank you for joining us. Sincerely, I do thank you for joining us. 
everyone who listens and downloads, we really appreciate it. And if you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. As Nate mentioned, there's lots of ways to get in touch with us. Any thoughts, suggestions? We really want to get more community-focused content in here. So feedback, questions, comments, whatever you got, we want to hear it and we'd love to include it in the show. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. And until then, have a great week, everyone. See you.